so as I grew, I sort of just slowly learned to switch off and dial down anything that was kind of naturally me and my expression and my identity and my emotional state my joy my exuberance i just i i just tried very hard to shut it all down and ultimately not exist as a person that is ultimately how i coped as i grew and that kicked in in my teens just don't be a person blank slate no no self-expression and all ignoring all of my sensory needs so I was dysregulated 24 7 my sleep was all over the place but to survive what I did was I just maxed out my specific academic abilities and I just pushed myself further and further and further and so I got through school and then I went to university and then I got a graduate job completely unraveling as a human and my mental health just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and then all of my self-worth and all of my survival and you know earning any money was just all banked on what I was capable of doing with my mind intellectually I just wanted to be alone I just wanted to stare into space and I had really major issues with um, trichotillomania with with pulling my hair out I really didn't feel like a person at all and we are live back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns, and as usual, I'm joined by the autism sage herself, Mama Babin. How are you? I am good. The sun is shining. You know, that's always a good day for me. Yeah, for once, the sun's shining where I am, which in the Northeast at this time of year, we basically like don't see the sun for three months. So thank God for small miracles, I guess. I know the sun dictates my life. And then we have uh, a wonderful um, guest from the UK who is joining us. And um, we've already kind of started. Uh, we had to hurry up and uh, we had to pause and hurry up and press record because we were all already getting to some really good uh, engaging discussion. So, um, Tony, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yes, I would love to. Thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast. I'm so delighted to be here with you today. Uh, my name is Tony Borneo, and I am indeed in the UK. I'm in the southeast of England, near to London, and I'm very happy to introduce myself. I am a 42-year-old woman um, who found out just over a year ago that I am autistic. And I'm sure we will get into a bit more of that as we start talking. And the way that um, Torin uh, came across me, and I was so happy to hear from him when he got in touch with me, is that I have been making a podcast since September um, called Autistic at 40. And it is very much about a wide range of reflections and realizations and new understandings about many aspects of my life, a lot of which was very confusing before I knew I was autistic, um, from this new perspective of understanding that I am an autistic woman. Love it. And I just want to point out to the listeners, um, you said part of your life was confusing until that is one of the reasons it's so important for parents to tell their children <laughs> that they have a diagnosis and why it can be very um, a game changer for many adults who 
um, do pursue a late diagnosis. So thank you for, for using that word because I, I just, I think it's important for people. It's like, you know, something, you just don't know what it is. Oh, I absolutely knew. Oh, I absolutely knew from pretty young. And, you know, the search was intense. I, I was looking, actively looking um, for, for the for the language, the framework of what it was that I was experiencing. And it started very young in my in my early teens when I noticed anger man anger management problems. That was my first line of inquiry, but this was before the internet, so I couldn't Google and I thought I've got anger management. So there were lots of different areas that I investigated along the mental health route, eventually into the sort of the trauma um uh, books and and content about these things and about intergenerational trauma because it it is quite difficult sometimes to be able to distinguish between other contributors to kind of mental health experiences we might be having um but yeah the search was was long and the what's really difficult I think when you don't have the language of autism is you supplant it with with things that just aren't accurate and then you go down paths of, you know, therapies and treatments and trying to therapize yourself into a, into something that you can never be. Um, and and, you know, one can lose a lot of um, a lot of energy, a lot of resources um, and ultimately, you know, all leads to not being able to accept yourself for who you really are if you don't have the language and you don't have the framework. That's a great way to say that. One of the things I've always been fascinated with, and this is that's not a good word, fascinated, but I don't really have another word for it, is getting diagnosed later in life. So as most of viewers of this podcast know, I was diagnosed when I was eight years old back in 2000. So back then, uh, supports basically didn't exist. So if you got diagnosed, your life was effectively over and it hung over your head everywhere you went. It got, because it got written down IEPs and everyone treats you. Back then you thought, people thought if someone's autistic that they were very, very fragile. So they had to be sort of handled with care. And by care, I mean spite, because people would be resentful. They had to handle you differently. Whether or not they had to handle you differently, that's a whole nother story. But they would handle you differently because the piece of paper said they handled you differently. And then they were spiteful for it. And I got this from my parents from teachers, from therapists, from everyone. So part of me always wishes I was diagnosed later in life because what happens is when you're diagnosed early, before like, I don't know, 2015, they basically say all the things you'll never be able to do. And it sort of hangs over your head. And by the time I hit my 20s, I was always someone who I'm like, I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to prove them wrong. So I always work, 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 prove everybody wrong. And I hit my 20s, I hit that wall that a lot of, undiagnosed autistic will hit usually around their 20s where like their ability to mask and adapt without support sort of just runs out of runway i still hit that but for me it was sort of a crisis because i'm like is this the ceiling everyone said i would eventually hit am i going to just despite the fact that i graduated high school and college all things people said i wasn't going to be able to do am i going to end up in a group home am i going to end up needing people to take care of me the rest of my life was what people were telling me would happen no matter how independent I showed that I was. And I've always wished, like, I wish I was diagnosed later in life, even though I know this isn't kind of how it is, I wish I was diagnosed later in life so I could just be myself. So people wouldn't treat me like 
of effectively that I had already hit my potential at eight years old. That that was it for me. So I, that's why I've always been. That's why I use the word fascinating because it, it, it's it's almost a strange experience to me getting to live your life not defined by a disorder because my life's been entirely defined by being autistic. I've always been torn the broken autistic kid. Everyone who has ever interacted with me, who is an adult, that's what they knew me as because it follows you wherever you go. But what was it like going through life knowing that you were different? Because I'm sure you probably, you mentioned this and I'm sure you probably knew you were different, but not really having a name for that. What was some of that like? I know it's a broad question. I apologize. No, no. Um, so and actually it's, it's really it's really good and important, I think, to have the conversation about the relative advantages and disadvantages of having been diagnosed as a child or an adolescent or as an adult, because I think there is a tendency in the late diagnosed community to assume that being diagnosed as a child would be a, you know, a wholly positive experience and you would get all of the support and understanding that you could possibly have wanted. And we probably have a very romanticized, rose-tinted um, idea of what that life might have been like. Um, but actually, in some ways, my experience was probably the exact uh, other side of the coin, the exact opposite, um, maybe to what you're describing, Torin, because as uh, an autistic child, as a young girl, who and I also um I haven't been diagnosed formally but I'm pretty clear that I also have um some form of ADD I'm pretty confident that I have inattentive ADD um so as I was growing I think obviously completely unconsciously I didn't because I didn't deliberately or consciously figure out any of these ways to cope but I think what happened was I would overcompensate as much as I could with anything that I was able to do whilst really feeling a lot of despair and anxiety and panic and isolation about the things that I knew I was unable to do. Um, so I would massively overcompensate from how panicky I felt about the way my peers, other other girls uh, in particular, because I was in a girls' school, the way that they saw me, I knew that there was so much disapproval from them and all of the adults in my life about the way I expressed myself, the way I always wanted to be up and moving, the way I was actually quite physically especially for a girl in terms of the stereotypes of girls I was quite aggressive as a child I wanted to kind of wrestle I wanted to move my body all the time I wanted to feel a lot of sensory things because now I understand that I have interoception and proprioception issues so I want to feel my body moving all the time and I want to feel things on my body all the time so as I grew and I, I've described some of this in the podcast I sort of just slowly learned to switch off and dial down anything that was kind of naturally me and my expression and my identity and my emotional state, my joy, my exuberance. I just, I, I just tried very hard to shut it all down and ultimately not exist as a person. That is ultimately how I coped as I grew. And that kicked in in my teens. Just don't be a person. Blank 
slate, no, no self-expression and all ignoring all of my sensory needs. So I was dysregulated 24 seven, my sleep was all over the place. But to survive, what I did was I just maxed out my specific academic abilities. And I just pushed myself further and further and further. And so I got through school, and then I went to university. And then I got a graduate job completely unraveling as a human and my mental health just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and then all of my self-worth and all of my survival and you know earning any money was just all banked on what I was capable of doing with my mind intellectually and luckily I was lucky because I had that tool I've been able to build a career on what my mind is able to do but at great personal cost um and in in my 20s when I left university and I started work the overwhelm was so intense that I was actually I was in a state of hypo arousal pretty much all the time so I felt very disconnected from reality almost very disconnected from myself very disconnected from other people I just wanted to be alone I just wanted to stare into space and I had really major issues with um, trichotillomania with with pulling my hair out compulsively which I do when I'm in a hypo aroused state and basically when I think about my 20s that's what my 20s were you know I other people talk about someone made a comment to me recently uh, who's a bit older than me who said oh I was thinking about the days when I was young and carefree you know <laughs> and I said young and carefree. No, because because I never had there was never a period in my in my life after the age of eight it, everything changed quite a lot for me after the age of eight there was never a period in my life where I had fun and didn't care about things and tried new things and I didn't I didn't do I never did anything like that I didn't I really didn't feel like a person at all so I guess I don't know if that answers any of the question I will say, you know, I'm sitting here in my head with my ticker tapes of things that I want to say, but I have disciplined myself to not interrupt all the time. Like, this is why I do this podcast, because parents need to understand how hard it is for their children to navigate this world. And when I hear parents say, oh, you know, this therapy was really great for my kid. We had like lots of success. I'm like, who really had success? You? or the kid because the the part you said we're at a great personal expense what people don't understand is you know the child pushes and pushes and pushes and you're like oh look see my child with autism adhd got a master's degree yeah and now they're on five different medications because they were not supported through their mental health crisis and they can't even keep a job because you thought that stuff was so important. And I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying I want listeners, specifically parents, therapists, and educators to understand some things are really not that important when it comes to our mental health. Grades are not as important when it comes to mental health. It does no good to have a child excelling and they can't function when they become an adult. What in the heck are we doing to our kids? So thank you for sharing that because people take away from, oh, you know, look, she's doing this. She's doing that. She's doing that. It's like there was a cost for me pushing to get that. Right? There was a lot of work that went into that and, and just sharing the fact that not feeling carefree. I don't think that people understand what it is to be 
an autistic individual navigating an environment that is just not set up for you. I don't think people really get how it impacts um, individuals. So thank you so much for sharing that. There's actually something else that I'd like to share um, that's coming to mind because the, the strange thing, I suppose, about being the human being that you are is sometimes it's not until you start talking about things that you realize actually how difficult it was um, and things that kind of I took for took for granted in the end about my own experience without any concept of what it would be like to be someone else. But the other, the thing, the thing that, um, the thing that just made me think of this as you were speaking, Stacey, about, you know, therapy and success and, you know, what are the outcomes of, of success in terms of ultimately trying to change an autistic child into being something that they're not is because I was completely neglecting and all of the people in my life because they didn't know were completely neglecting my actually quite significant needs and disability and I've really embraced the the social model of disability and I very much identify as a disabled person now but because I was neglecting those things so much but appearances probably looked kind of okay as in I got I got through the school day I got through some of my activities. I went to violin classes. I went to orchestra on Saturdays and I held it together during those times. But I was actually still experiencing meltdowns. You know, I, I've experienced autistic meltdowns my whole life. I just didn't know what they were. And what I'm really understanding now, because I'm now having externalized classic autistic meltdowns and completely letting myself do that because that's what my body needs. But when I was in my teens and my 20s and my 30s, I was having internal implosion style meltdowns. And from pretty young, that would in that would involve self injurious actions. I hurt myself on a very regular basis. And I learned really young, like 10, I learned how to hurt myself very with very high impact without leaving a mark because all of this had to be a secret. That was so clear to me from very young that I would get, not only would I've got in trouble for having a meltdown, but I would also get in trouble for breaking things, which I desperately wanted to do. I wanted to smash my room up so much, I can't tell you. And I still want to smash things, but I would have got in so much trouble for that, for that kind of the the, the releasing the aggression that I needed to release and I would have got I I was scared of getting in trouble if there were any marks on myself from hurting myself when I think about that now I just think if I had a child and I found out that they were so young learning how to hurt themselves in secret as a way to cope my heart would absolutely break and what frightens me a little bit if is the potential perhaps for people to think that their child is doing really well with these strategies and the therapy and the what have you, because there's so much pressure on them to look like they're doing okay. But even really young children do things secretly in a state of shame. And shame, I mean, I love talking about shame. When I discovered Brené Brown, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, she is onto something. Shame will kill will kill you shame will kill anyone of any age and I'm only just now starting to really engage and heal 
you know, from years, decades, decades of shame. So I kind of wanted to share that too, because I have no idea whether other children are experiencing those kinds of things that I did, but they they really might be. Well, one of the things I want to say is first, when there's smoke, there's fire and you ma'am are spitting it. But you mentioned earlier that things sort of changed for you when you were eight years old. What were some of the things that you that that you felt changed once that happened? You know, as is often the way for autistic people, it was actually the fact that a, a few things in my life changed. I have a big sister who's 10 years older than me. And she is basically an angel. Like she is just the sweetest, gentlest, most loving human. And she was a very safe person for me, a very safe place to be around. I wanted to be around her all the time when I was little. When I was, um, so just after I turned eight, she left home. She went off to university. She didn't come back very often because our household was very volatile, very tumultuous, I've spoken about him on my podcast. My father, who passed away last year, was undiagnosed autistic and didn't have any coping strategies for managing his regulation. So we had a very hard going family situation. So when she left, she really didn't come back. She was gone. And I went to visit her and things as I got older. And now we're very, very close. But she was gone. And we also moved at that same age. We moved to a new town a new house. I moved to a new school that was much bigger. So I'd moved from this really little, tiny little village in the southwest of England where all the hippies live to a city. And it was just culturally a total shock. The kids were much more worldly. They all were very confused about my hobbies and the weird clothes that I wore. And because I was really into very old fashioned stuff. I really liked stuff from like the 1910s (laughs) like you know a lot of autistic kids have their special interests and I had mine so there was just there was just a lot of change and it was really the point at which I became extremely isolated and in fact when the children around me started targeting me started playing games about you know the things that they probably thought were maybe they may have thought they were quite harmless games that little kids play but it was they choose a person, don't they, to, to, whose expense it has to be at. And I was that person. Um, I wasn't the only one, but I was I was one of them. So I, I became aware at that age that I wasn't going to anymore be able to do my thing. <laughs> and and the, for the people around me to be OK with that, like no one was OK with who I was from that point onwards. And it was it was and it was traumatic. I'm really sorry to hear that. And some of it I can sort of identify with and like where your sister's coming from. As people who listen to podcasts know, I had a similar situation with my father. I was raised by a single father. He almost certainly was undiagnosed autistic and a whole bunch of other mental illnesses too. And he had a drug abuse problem and he was just very abusive. So as soon as I turned 18 and graduated high school, I was gone. I went as far away from home as the state university system will allow because going to school out of state was not going to happen because we grew up really poor, but I got out of there. But you also mentioned earlier about masking. What you described was, was, was masking, how you had to basically tone down the parts of yourself in order to not stand out. As you got older, you, you mentioned that you've been working on unmasking and that you're pretty unmasked now. You mentioned that before we went live. 
what was what did the process look like for unmasking for you? So it happened fairly unconsciously because I think everything about me was just ready, ready to kind of drop everything that had been my life up until that point with with regards to the shame and the not accepting myself and the accommodating other people not accepting me. So I had built a heavy mask, especially in my 30s. So in my 20s, I didn't, I hadn't really developed much of a mask. I was that sort of blank. I was just blank. And then I started observing, like really observing other adults and copying them. And I copied everything from a woman that I worked for who had a French accent. I had a French accent for a while, which was a bit baffling to me because people were picking up on it. And I was like, I'm not really sure why I have this accent. But I would copy the way that people spoke to each other when they greeted each other, when the things that they did in the workplace, the offering to get things when they popped out, the not not really I didn't invite people to lunch and things because I had to be on my own at lunchtime but anyway but in my 30s the mask was so entrenched um obviously I didn't know that so I thought I had completely figured out what I who I was and I was very animated very smiley my voice sounded completely different than it does now talking to you today quite high-pitched and a few a few other things that I'd kind of figured out but I was struggling more and more even before finding out that I'm autistic I was struggling it was slipping it was slipping a lot because I was really burned out I'd been burned out for years and I was really struggling and I talked about this in my, in my, my first a couple of podcast episodes how much I was struggling and didn't know why I was exhausted and didn't know why I couldn't sometimes I couldn't speak and I had no understanding of why I couldn't speak sometimes I couldn't process information or decisions so by the time I found out I was autistic the mask was sliding off already it was already it was ready to drop so so what what I did was I followed the little breadcrumbs Every time I noticed something popping out that was a little bit unusual. So if I found that I was being very loud, laughing, being exuberant, I would I would grab that little breadcrumb and and kind of follow the trail and hold on to it. And I basically just stopped covering up the natural expression that started popping out. And if I hadn't known that I was autistic and I hadn't started learning about the nervous system and the regulation and there are children who are starting to get autism diagnosis in my family and they were using language like fast feeling fast and I was like oh that's so useful because I can switch from really flat really monotone really slow talking to really excitable my voice sounds very I'm starting to do it now because I'm getting excited as I'm talking I speed up <laughs> I laugh, I get more animated. And I understand now what's going on there. I understand. And that is that is my natural state. And just over a year ago, before I'd understood I was autistic, this would be happening in conversations in the workplace. I would get really excited about a project and I would speed up and then I would find myself apologizing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I got really manic in that meeting. I don't know what came over me. And I would bring it down and I would 
you know, all this stuff. Equally, if I was very flat and people would be like, well, no need to be so excited about this project, you know, being sarcastic with me. And I'd be like, I'm really sorry. I'm so flat. I don't know what is wrong with me today. And I'm struggling to, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but there were days when I was, Mm -hmm. I would struggle to talk. So I just, I just observed myself without judgment and I let the true expression come out and I didn't edit myself anymore. And I, that's basically what I do now. So when I go into, well, I work from home a lot of the time and I go into the London office about once a week, which is really hard. (laughs) Getting there is really hard. But how I am now is how I am. And so the other day I was dysregulated. I didn't have the clothes and the food that I need for my day to go well. And I became unable to speak at about lunchtime. I messaged a bunch of colleagues. I said, I'm going to have to cancel our conversations today. I had a couple of meetings booked in because I'm being very out deliberately in the workplace. Representation matters. So I am being very open. I am not verbal today. I probably will be tomorrow. Can we reschedule? Because I never had anyone. I never knew a single autistic adult in my 20s and my 30s. So, yeah, I've answered a few questions probably here because this is what happens when I get excited. No, no, no. You answered the question perfectly. And and I love this. And I'm sitting here cracking up not at you because you literally described one of my favorite colleagues. And I kept saying, you are so autistic. No, I don't think so. I'm like, oh my gosh, let's just talk about the fact that you do this, this, and this. And she does exactly what you described in terms of like, she would get like really, really animated. And then everyone would look at her and then she would apologize. And then mm. it, it, I love her to death. I mean, she's, I, I wish I could work with her every day. She just was so great. It was so funny because it didn't help that she also, and I say didn't help because she would wear like goofy clothes, right? So I'm like, okay, you cannot wear pigs with wing leggings to work. Like, you cannot wear that to Why work. Not? First of all, it's not professional. Well, we worked in an office, so you can't wear like leggings is not, and certainly not like pigs on your pants when you're like going to meetings. It's like, we have a dress code on the whatever. And so she's like, oh, I know. I said, I don't care if you wear pig pants, but it it's not working. And like, it's just all of that together. So we actually ended up coming with a really good plan, right? Um, and, and, uh, she still is like, oh, you know, just ADHD. I'm like, okay, whatever floats your boat. Right. Um, because she just was so frustrated all the time. And I was like, just, I want you to do a different job, right? Like no one respects you. Like this is it, the people we're working with are just there. I mean, they don't even respect me, but you know, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go into an anxiety panic attack. Right. So it's really affecting you. Um, luckily she's doing something else now because she's so good at what she does. And it just infuriates me that she would not be respected just because she was different. Right. Um, and we worked with, I mean, the people were assholes. It's not even about her being neurodivergent. I mean, they were just jerks. I'm not even going to like excuse the fact that it was just because she was different. They were just, they were not nice people. Right. Um, but that's the workplace. I mean, you know, uh, my sons are young adults and they're like, people, adults do the same. It's like high school. I said, yeah, it pretty much doesn't yeah, get high, high, school high school never ends. Yeah. It never ends. Adults do not mature. Nope. They don't mature much, not much in the workplace. It's just catty gossipy, cliquish, and 
um, not all places. I'm sure there are nice places to work, but I've not worked in a lot of those places. <laughs> I work in education. <laughs> it's sad to hear that, actually. I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm quite senior in the organization that I work in. I work for the nursing trade union, um, and our nurses have been striking. Um, I was about to say, didn't you guys just go on strike? Yes, and we're just on pause because talks have just begun finally but it's interesting transition for me to make having been heavy heavy masked been at my organization for coming up to seven years um I'm I'm being quite demanding of the place that I work and the colleagues that I work with mm-hmm. and I before I knew I, I was autistic I, w- I really struggled with I really struggled with with professional relationships. I had lots of conflicts. I had lots of very difficult conversations. I had lots and lots of feedback about my communication style. I got accused a lot of being passive aggressive, even though I think it's because of the cultural difference between autistic people and holistic people. So when we say things, we usually intend that they can be taken at face value. But my understanding is that non-autistic people are slightly more coded I mean it's a total mystery to me I I don't you know I don't know I don't know how those conversations go so that a lot of that kind of happens so I am really inviting I'm really inviting the people that I work with to be mature about the fact that I am sharing with them that I am autistic and I was really scared at first to do that um there's no other out autistic person in my whole organization that I'm aware of so as far as I knew I'm I'm the first but I'm planning to kind of go and find some more because there have there must be more but I'm really demanding a level of maturity from people in you know my family as well talking to my parents I didn't know how they would take it I didn't know how my colleagues would take it I didn't know whether I would be believed I didn't know whether it would be used against me straight away, whether people would be like, oh, great, there's a reason we can shove her out now. Like, I didn't know whether any of that would happen, but I had to take the chance because because I was at the end of my rope. Like, I was struggling so much. I almost felt like I'd pretty much lost everything anyway. Like, I felt like I was hanging on by my nails. So I've been very lucky. I've been very, very fortunate because actually what's happened is this transition has actually really helped me to find my feet professionally by being so out about it and by saying I'm going to trust you with this information I now expect you to meet me halfway and we will find ways to understand each other and communicate with each other and I don't know whether I don't know necessarily how that's going from everyone else's perspective but I seem to be having more more open more collegiate more trusting conversations with my colleagues um so I'm sad to hear that about your colleague and I know there are some places that are just like forget it um (laughs) the kicker is that the folks that were in this colleague group were people on the autism team that were supposed to be fighting for our students to have accommodations. And she did eventually do exactly what you did. She, you know, advocated and expressed and did all these things. And 
nothing changed, of course, because they were just assholes. I mean, I, I don't even know how else to just horrible people. How are you going to work in, for a school and you're on a team to fight for our students to get what they need and you're not even willing to do it yourself in the workplace? I mean, this is what, you know, we're dealing with over here. What started your autism journey in terms of I might be autistic? How did that begin? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, an, that's an important one, isn't it? How did I figure it out? How did I figure it out after so long of going down so many long, windy garden paths? Well, the really interesting thing for me is that I was not checking out autism at all. I didn't think autism was anything to do with me because I actually had no idea what autism is. I had not one clue. And it wasn't until a couple of children in my family were getting their autism diagnosis. It really was as simple as this. One day I was sick, I was recovering from COVID. And I said to myself, it's about time I learned something about autism so that I can be a better adult relative to these children in my family. They had been diagnosed for a few years. I had had no interest whatsoever. I had I had looked up like a couple of basic kind of fact sheets on the internet and been like, I couldn't get my head around what I was reading. It just seemed completely alien. I was like, I don't really get this. It doesn't make any sense. And I was even seeing things like interoception and proprioception and being like, I don't know. I don't know what this is. Because of course, I was completely switched off from myself by this point. So I just happened. This is why the community is so important. I just happened to go onto YouTube, which is my favorite source of information. And I selected a video kind of randomly. And it was two adults, a man and a woman, whose names I have forgotten, who were talking about being autistic adults. And they were talking about girls who learn how to mask and who grow up masked and all of the fallout from that. And it just hit me like a sledgehammer over the head. And I knew instantly <laughs> immediately I thought good god I'm autistic I am autistic this is the secret the key to everything and so I immediately jumped onto you know googled how do I how do I find out how do I find out and I found a couple of checklists and I found one that was specifically about there was a checklist based on the research about autistic girls and women and within, I mean, 45 minutes later, I went downstairs and told my husband that I'm autistic. It was that it was that simple. And I haven't doubted it for one second since then, because I do I have heard actually of um, that it's quite common for late identified adults, particularly women, to have imposter syndrome. And even when they've got a formal diagnosis to be doubting it, they often doubt it when they start learning how to um you know make accommodations in their life and they're quite regulated and they're like well I'm not collapsing every day and I'm not you know unraveling all the time so I maybe I'm not but actually being just in a distressed state all of the time is not prerequisite for being autistic so that's basically how it happened so I knew I I just knew for a fact that I'm autistic as soon as I found information presented in a way that was accessible relevant to me which of course none of that information that I had googled you know previously when thinking about the autistic kids it just wasn't presented in that way you know it's written about the external presentation of autism none of which I was doing at that point in my life I wasn't stimming 
you know, which I do now. I've very much reclaimed all of my stimming and it keeps me regulated. It's very helpful. I wasn't having um, external present presenting meltdowns. I wasn't aware of my sensory needs, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, so that's how it happened. I took myself off to my primary care, uh, my my NHS primary care practitioner and said hi well I was crying and I was also very dysregulated that day so she did not challenge me <laughs> I said hi I'm I've figured out I'm autistic I'm definitely autistic I would like a referral which we can do in this country but it does take years so I'm still technically on the list and uh, she was like yep yep you seem pretty autistic <laughs> uh, and there's quite often I mean I'm on a tangent now but it's quite often times where it's not until a later day when I'm looking back on something that's happened that I even realize how dysregulated I was and how I might have been presenting so that particular day in the waiting room I was very burned out I was all over I was you know dysregulated basically and the GP you know she walked into the waiting room and I was I was rocking I was rocking I was probably humming which I do to soothe myself and I I had my hands over my eyes and I was pressing my eyes in which I find quite soothing and I you know in I didn't think about it much on the day but a few days later I was like, oh, I was, I was, I was actually, you know, I was rocking and humming. I was on the build up to kind of slightly meltdown territory. Yeah, that's, that's kind of autistic. And I think that happens, that probably happens to me quite a lot. I think there are probably lots of occasions where I present much more typically autistic than I realise. So even though I'm saying to you now, I had a really heavy mask through my 30s, maybe, maybe it wasn't that convincing. I don't really know. As unfortunate as it was that you were in such a state of dissociation and dysregulation, it probably helped you because the way autism tends to be diagnosed is through deficits. If you will have come in with your shit together as a successful female in their, I think, time would have been like late 30s or early 40s. I've heard so many stories, in particular in the UK, because of the healthcare system and how they treat people with disorders and mental illnesses, you might have had a much harder time. It was because you were not having a really bad day. So all the autism came out, for lack of a better word, mm. that they're like, yep, autism. No, totally, you... totally. And and I've since learned that since, you know, getting to know um, through through the online community mainly, you know, I've I've, I've had fascinating conversations in person in text you know on Facebook all different places with so many women who've had such different experiences and they've really struggled with that because you know the classic one is well you're making eye contact with me so you can't be autistic now on that day I couldn't make eye contact but of course you know I've always prided myself in fact I used to make such intense eye contact that I used to make other people uncomfortable now I'm understanding that I was massively overcompensating because I found eye contact so intrusive I I always when I meet a kiddo and I walk in and the kid goes like this I'm like oh they've been in ABB <laughs> for how many years how many years have they been in ABB? <laughs> clearly they've been like you know eye contact look at the toy look at the toy it's so ridiculous I can't even stand it but it's just it's so unnecessary when I realized that actually eye contact was more of an issue for me than I thought it was, I realized that um, for me, eye contact 
with someone um it's very different on the screen so I'm very grateful that I'm mainly now behind a laptop um but when I see someone in person and I'm making eye contact with them and especially if it's like a one-to-one -one conversation it's so intimate it feels like I'm kissing them it feels like <laughs> kissing it's a lot and it makes me like really awkward because I'm like this is really intimate you know it's it, it feels really inappropriate it's so funny you say that Tony because it's the opposite for me like I am more comfortable doing eye contact when I'm talking with people in person but on the zoom and I zoom all day I mean it's my work all day I have to consciously say Stacy look towards the person look towards the person because I'm such a people like human connection it's just and I've been doing zoom for I don't even know how long but it's still like I have to consciously think about it whereas I don't when I'm um in person it's so much easier for me on zoom I love the zoom it took me a while when we first started doing the podcast and I start, and I first started working with Stacy it took me a little while to sort of get used to the whole zoom dynamic now I love it because I can make eye contact with somebody while at the same time making sure that I'm not looking too autistic so yes. I can like, while I'm listening, yes. I can look at myself and be like, okay, I need to keep a neutral facial expression. Mm -hmm. I need to not be like freaking looking like there's a bumblebee flying around. That is so true. That is so true. And I've become very reliant on being able to have one eye on what is my face doing. And it was actually, it's actually how I realized. So all the way through 2020 and most of the way through 21, I didn't know I was autistic. It was only from being on Zoom meetings all the time that I've found out how over animated my face was. I realized I was basically doing emoji faces all the time. And I noticed, I noticed that mine was like much more amped up than other people's faces. I could actually compare them. And I was like, God, this is really weird. Why is my face so extreme or flat? Nothing, complete, total extremes. And so now I can use the camera to actually notice when I'm masking harder than I need to and then I bring it down because masking is like it's just it uses up energy energy points basically it's it's you know it's almost like having a little you know on the mobile phone your little battery bars you know I I'm, the harder I mask the more the faster I'm going to run out of battery so I tone it down as we get towards the end of this podcast I have a couple more questions and the first is you're a parent, right? No, I'm not. Oh, I, I thought you were. I don't know why I got that impression. I'd quite like to talk about that briefly, actually, if, if we can for a moment. So, yeah, this is a really, really, this was one of the most confusing experiences of my life. I have been with my partner, now husband, for 22 years. Okay, we met young. And he has been with me through thick and thin like all of this and and there was a lot both of us didn't understand back then so he's with me he's amazing he's brilliant so it was a mystery to me and everyone in my life why given that I'd always said I wanted children why was I not having children and I I was confused from from about 33 I was completely consumed I was completely all consumed with how do I have a child? How do I have a child? How could I possibly be pregnant, have a baby, have a child, and then it grow up? I just couldn't explain why, but it felt absolutely impossible. It felt absolutely beyond me. And I was 
there were a few things about it that I eventually kind of put my finger on. One was when I thought about having a child, it broke my heart immediately because for me, childhood equals pain. Childhood equals despair. And I thought I can't bring a child into the world to feel how I felt. So that was the first thing. The other thing was I was terrified of being out of control with my child, like my dad was with me. So I, before I knew I was having autistic meltdowns, if I was overwhelmed or there was a change of plan or something happened, I would, I would have a rage reaction. What I thought was a rage reaction. I would shout. I would hit things, never a person. I never, ever directed aggression towards my partner or anyone else. But I would want to break things and make a lot of noise and very aggressively. And I would scare my cats sometimes. Sometimes it would happen and they would be so frightened. And then I would have to go and find, I've got two cats, and I would go and find them and cuddle them and comfort them afterwards. I'm so sorry. You know, I just felt so awful, these little innocent creatures. So I was really, really scared that this inexplicable rage problem that I had would basically put my child, if I had one, in danger. And my memories of my father's rage that I now understand the nature of, it wasn't just when it became physical, which it did sometimes. It was just the terror of, a, of, of seeing adult rage like that. You know, it was so intimidating. It was so frightening. And I was, I was, I, I knew that I, that that was a high, high risk. And I, I have zero tolerance of children experiencing or being exposed to that level of rage, anger, aggression. It's zero. So I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I had a child and, and there was anything like that in their life. So I was confused for almost 10 years and people stopped asking me, not that it's anyone's business, but it was awful. It was awful when actually I found myself saying, just to keep things simple, oh, I've decided not to have children. I've just, we've decided not to have children because that was massively betraying the, the grief that I was feeling about not having children. I have had a lot of grief about not having children, but I've been able to make peace with that now that I understand what it was that I was experiencing and why I was so confused. And of course, if I had known then what I know now, maybe it would have been possible. I've made peace now at 42 that I'm not looking to try to rush myself into something so gargantuan when I still have very significant disability. I have significant disability and it's a lot for me to manage my day to day. My husband helps me a lot. And in the end, I think it's the right thing for us, but it it, caused, it has caused me a lot of pain and a lot of grief. Um, and I really want to talk about it because this is not a story that I have ever heard anyone talk about. I've never heard someone say, um, it's not by choice. You know, there's two, I think there are two stories around people who don't have children. They choose not to have children or they try and they can't conceive. So I'd never heard anyone else talk about, I didn't feel able to for whatever reason. And, I'm, and I know I'm not the only one. I've had um, friends of mine who are bipolar say, I just don't trust 
trust myself enough to, mm. to parent. Um, and, and I will say from, um, you know, my experience as someone who works with a lot of parents, there are a lot of moms who have confided in me that, you know, I wish I wouldn't have, I, I feel like I'm not, you know, because, um, of their trauma or, um, high levels of anxiety and, and I will say as someone who is in the business of children, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult for me to watch parents who are struggling with their own self of whatever it is that they're struggling with continue to have more children and more children. And then we're just bringing more children into trauma. And I'm like, and then get a puppy. And I'm like, <laughs> get a puppy. Like, like, what do you mean? I mean, I remember when one of my wonderful moms and and she, you know, had a lot going on and with herself and her three children who were also autistic and, and she just thought it'd be great to get a puppy. And I'm like, no, 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 that won't be great. It won't be great at all. Um, they did get a puppy and it wasn't great. And I was like, why are we piling on more stuff? Like, I think people massively overestimate their capabilities hugely and then are surprised when actually it turns out to be really I always I always tell off my friends who have children who get a puppy I'm always like have you not heard about puppies why did you get a puppy because they're adorable but they are babies my my favorite is when someone who has someone who has a baby and says oh my gosh I'm so tired I'm like did you not read the manual you're not going to sleep the rest of your life, the entire rest of your life, you're not going to sleep. One of my moms, she was so cute, poor thing. She just, I don't think she even knew what parenting was. And, and she had a four-year-old and a two-year-old and the two-year-old was diagnosed with autism. And, and she would come every session and say, when is it going to get better? When am I going to get, I'm like, you're not, you're going to be exhausted the rest of your life. Parenting is hard work. It's 24 nonstop. It doesn't get easier. You don't sleep. They get become teenagers. My children are grown, right? I, I don't still feel, oh, they're safe. They're not with me. They're grown and on their own. So of course I, I'm, you know, I have two black males in America that are six feet, six foot three, six foot one. Every minute of the day, I could probably consume myself with wondering if they made it home safely. Parenting's a lot of work. Torin hears me talk about it. It's a lot of work and it should be taken seriously. And unfortunately, a lot of people are pressured, um, whether it's cultural, family, or just we do it because we feel like it's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> like, you know, we have a lot of people in the world, so... Uh, it's okay. Um, and it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And, and, you know, I think that there, there needs to be more discussion from the perspective that you're saying in terms of, I think that's a lot about the shame of being, you know, the shame of saying, um, you know, I'm bipolar and I don't feel like I would be the mom that I would want to be right. That shouldn't be shameful. That should be just honesty around, um, us being able to decide or accept what we can handle and what we don't think that we can handle. And it's okay, right? It's okay to be able to say that. And the same with, with moms who have children and don't like being a mom. You know, there should be no shame in saying, I don't really like doing this. Uh, it's not what I thought it was going to be. It's really a crappy job. Uh, and and I, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> like dads do it all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
more conversations. And I think we're getting there where there's more conversations where women are feeling more comfortable talking about that. Um, because it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot of work and you don't know, what do we say? You don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get. Well, exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, looking at my, looking at my DNA, you know, now I realize I come from an autistic family. I used to have a total misconception that in a whole bunch of people who related to each other, there might be, you know, one autistic child. Now I understand my my father's whole family is autistic and or ADHD. And now everything's making sense. And the whole family pretty much is talking about it now, which is amazing. You know, our once a year family reunion, you know, we get together and we it's basically a neurodivergent garden party. You know, it's, it's wonderful. It's like the LGBT community. You're like, oh my gosh, we have like a ton of LGBTQ folks in our family, but nobody talked about it. <laughs> nobody talked about it. Right before we go, we mentioned, we sort of hinted a little earlier that you were working on a book. So would you mind telling us about that? Um, yes, I would love to tell you about it. I mean, I'm pretty open about these things because because I think I'm more likely to actually do something about it if I tell people I'm doing it. <laughs> so the the idea of the book i had the idea of the the book first because writing is my preferred communication style i feel much more fluent in written form i'm i'm realizing now that i'm hyperlexic i learned to read and type really little and i can read really fast so i i love writing and when i found out that i was autistic and i had a couple of really significant conversations with my father at the right at the end of his life and he shared with me that he actually knew that he was autistic and he had he had known for a long time and so he really he really recognized it in me at this point when I was kind of sharing it and I said to him I really want to write a book that is about everything I am learning about how to create a sustainable joyful life as an autistic woman, I feel like I've got a perspective to share that could be useful for other people. Because if I have an autistic superpower, it is that my mind is very good at structuring and organizing content and information. So all the things that I was learning and making sense of, I was realizing I was making sense of them quite quickly and in quite an organized way. And I could kind of see themes and I could almost see chapters I could see kind of the outline of a book organizing itself in my mind and he really encouraged me um you know this is literally in the month before he passed away last year and he really encouraged me and he said you yes this is you know it would be so wonderful if you could um help other people by sharing what you know and you're a good writer and all this kind of stuff so I had this you know really grand idea and then I realized I was just too tired to write a book I was just too tired at the end of my working week where it's meetings and bit of masking and lots of writing and emails and all of that stuff I was too tired to draft a book <laughs> so I realized well I've got the content forming I've got the outlines of everything I'm going to teach myself how to make a podcast and speak it once a week I'm going to basically talk through what I would write down in a chapter, I'll speak it out. And I will keep going until I've said everything that I've figured out in this time. And I've actually just done the last 
episode of season one last weekend and I've done 23 episodes now I won't necessarily make every single one of those into a chapter but I might so I only today I sat down with the transcript of my podcast to actually be like okay what have I got in here does this sat does this read like something written and actually it kind of does because the way I talk on the podcast is not uh it's sort of like a it's it's somewhere half between being conversational and scripted um so yeah it kind of does so everything I do I'm having to learn and research how to do these things as I go I never in a million years would have thought that I would learn how to buy a microphone and plug it in and get the software for the edit I never thought in a million years I'd be able to do that but I learned it off YouTube like I learn everything learn how to do the podcast and now I'm researching how do you write and publish a book so this is my big idea for 2023 I think it lends itself to a book and the motivation the whole point of it is that since producing the podcast I've had quite a lot of people get in touch with me to say to me that when they listen to me speaking about their life it's like they're hearing about their own life and things that they that they were feeling too overwhelmed too tired too confused to put their finger on or kind of make sense of there are things that I have been able to articulate that they have not been able to articulate for themselves and this is this is where I realise this gift that maybe I've got that is about organising information, incoming data goes in and then I kind of chuck this stuff out. It's useful for people. I mean, people are telling me it's useful for them. So the book will be very, basically the same stuff that's in season one of the podcast, probably. The idea being that it would be in a different format because podcasts are not for everyone. I only started listening to podcasts very recently. Some, uh, some some people really aren't into listening to audio and they would rather read a book. So it's just about, you know, being able to reach reach more of the people because I really can't stand the idea that anyone out there is isolated or feeling like no one understands them. Um, so the more resources that we've got, and there are lots of wonderful books by other people, I'm by no means putting something that, out into the world that, doesn't exist in some shape or form but the more versions the more types of story because of course not everyone is going to relate to my story so we need diversity of stories the more formats that we've got the more likely we are to find our people which is basically my life mission now is to find everyone and kind of bring them in where they're safe in the community that sounds so great and when you do eventually write that book just let us know. And of course, we'll have you back on the podcast, promote the hell out of it. As we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to say? So my big realization lately is that the most important thing for any autistic person is self-acceptance. We've got a chance then, I think, of a good life if we are not rooted in shame if if we if we accept ourselves and genuinely love ourselves for who we are that is the most important thing we were talking before uh no I think we were on air where we were talking about you know grades aren't aren't everything they really aren't going to school every day getting the grades is is not everything being a well 
person who understands themselves and understands their gifts, whatever they are, whatever they are, because everybody has a gift, whether that is being able to bring joy to someone else, whatever it is, is the most important thing. And what I'm realizing is I feel absolutely essential for autistic people is we need to be connected with and spend time with other autistic people whether that's online or in in in-person events it is absolutely crucial um and I don't think we have enough spaces safe spaces facilitated spaces for all ages I'm imagining also that the spaces that we do have probably don't pay enough heed to intersections and differences so we need to create many 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 types of safe autistic spaces online and in person because we need to be together and I've been spending time with my local uh, autistic group we meet once a month mixed ages and genders over 25 although there are a couple of slightly younger than 25 in there and it is so evident that space that we have together is probably the only space that a lot of us have to be fully unmasked, fully accepted, fully trusting that we're not being judged, able to talk about anything and know that people understand us and are listening to us without judgment. So this is my big driver at the moment. It's about um, making sure that all of us have got a safe autistic space to be in and be connected with each other. I just think it's something to be mindful about with young people, because even if even if they're, you know, in a school and having their accommodations and, you know, managing OK, are they actually spending time with people who genuinely know what it's like to be autistic? I just want to say to the listeners, I want you to rewind that part and listen to it again, <laughs> especially the parents. Um, it's one of the things that I've really been pushing parents and Torin, I think maybe Maybe this could be um, uh, a podcast topic for it because, you know, I've always been sort of wishy-washy around inclusion in the classroom. And when I say inclusion, I'm not saying inclusion. I'm saying like, you know, oh, let's just mainstream everyone. But they need to know other people. It's like, I need to know other Black girls growing up. Uh, If you adopt someone who is of a different race, they need to know (laughs) folks who are of that race. Um, it is something to be said about people who have the shared experience. You know, when before I was a mom, I didn't hang out with moms. And then you need to be with moms when you have a baby because people know what it's like. So I, I appreciate you um, organically bringing that up because it is something that I've been really, really trying to talk about with families in terms of we cannot, the answer is not isolating your child to be in a group of holistic, neurotypical. There's so many... Tori knows I can't even keep up with the terminology. My brain's old now. Um, I feel like every week I have to learn what I can't say and what I can say. <laughs> what's, what's appropriate? What's not appropriate? Um, but it's so important. You know, um, we have these commercials in the States that are like, you know, we need to see, right? It's this whole thing about, you know, girls need to see women doing things that, you know, we only saw men do. And I'm like, yes, and autistic children need to see other autistic people um it's important Uh, so thank you for bringing that up representation matters and that's why I'm out unapologetically out so yeah thank you so much no problem thank you for coming on that was this this was a good episode this was this was really fun and Stacey that's why we're working to 
shift the narrative on everything autism. So don't just listen. Those of you who are already in process of shifting your narrative, you've got to bring other folks to listen as well. This episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism is brought to you by us, because we are now shameless shills. Anyway, Stacy, tell us about this new product you're offering. I promise this isn't actually a joke, guys. This is an actual service that we hope will help people that is completely legitimate. I'm not making a joke, so I'm just going to shut up and let Stacy talk. And I will say it's, um, it was an idea that I had based on conversations with families and so far it's so good. I typically do parent coaching and lately I've been doing coaching for either college age autistic individuals or newly diagnosed autistic moms. I am now doing ADHD coaching. So it's really about helping teens and young adults, uh, specifically uh, teens and young adults like getting ready for adulthood, right? Or maybe trying to reach some new goals in high school and they're just wanting to be more independent but frustrated with the interference of uh, ADHD, the executive functioning, not working all the time efficiently. It is designed to help the individual understand their ADHD because everyone experiences ADHD differently and also to help them understand their strengths and what works really well for them and how we can use those strengths to compensate for the challenges, right? So if your executive functioning is glitchy and there are certain things that you're not able to complete, start, finish, and it's interfering, like you're maybe not turning your um, assignments in on time or you're not getting to work on time, we work on strategies uh, to help with that. Uh, so I'm excited about this being available. The, the reason I actually thought of it is because the young adults that are coming to me, Torin, they, they never got an opportunity to learn this. So they're coming to me because they've crashed, they failed the semester, they've had a mental health crisis. If they would have been able to learn the things they're learning now when they were teens or before they went to college or when they first started college, then we may have been able to avoid some of the disasters and the chaos that has occurred. We have a lot of new listeners. Can you tell us like who you are, what are your credentials? You know, it's really funny because some of my older clients don't know a lot about my career, but what I will say is my background is in speech therapy. That's how I started my career. And then I sort of transitioned into um, an obsession with uh, autism and trying to understand it, this was like 20 plus years ago, before Google, before Amazon, before social media, of course. And that has just been my thing since. So I have gotten certifications around sensory integration therapy. I have gone back and gotten another master's in child development uh, as uh, I guess it's a psychology master's. So I have educated myself, but I've also done a lot of experience to be able to learn. And of course, I have sat at the table with, collaborated and learned with many, many neurodivergent individuals from ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and all the other things that are sort of umbrella under that. What are some of the strategies you use to help these teens and young adults achieve their goal? One of the things that I think I really have to, to, in terms of a strategy, is something probably most folks don't think of as strategy, but it's trying to help the teen and the young adult figure out what they want their day to look like. Do you like it chaotic? I met for the first time with a 19-year-old. This is second semester in college. 
and I asked him what he wanted to work on and he said organization and I said okay so we started talking about some things and so then I asked some questions and you know he was turning his assignments in he wasn't looking for his phone all the time he wasn't losing things so I said well what about the organization and he said well and he turns the camera and he says look at my room I said you're in college it's your dorm room you can do whatever you want with your room is it bothering you that your clothes are on the floor no I said do you know where your items are if you need them he said yes I said, then that's not a problem. You know, the reality of it was that he didn't need to use his energy on keeping his room organized. That organized chaos worked for him. I like it a lot. I think you're going to help a lot of people. But thanks a lot, Stacey. And now back to the episode.